and welcome to A Court of Three Strands, the Palatine Institute's podcast on creating Christian culture. Through this show, we hope to provide a resource of education and encouragement for students, parents, and leaders about the revival of Christian values in our community. On A Court of Three Strands, we'll focus on the three foundational strands that make a strong, flourishing Christian culture, the church, the family, and education. We desire to order these things around God's word to advance Christ's kingdom and so glorify him and bless our community. My name is Ron Young, former headmaster at Providence Academy and founder of the Palatine Institute. And I'm Allison Tuttle, a wife and mother and the director of the Palatine Institute. Through our conversations, we look forward to sharing fellowship, knowledge, and practical wisdom for his glory here on A Court of Three Strands podcast. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to a quarter three strands podcast. I am here not with our regular co-host Allison, but I have a special guest Uh, today. uh, It is our privilege to have Senator Josh Hawley from the great state of Missouri. Senator Hawley graduated from Stanford with a bachelor's of arts degree in history, earned his doctorate of jurisprudence from Yale. And as impressive as that all sounds, get this, he's married to Aaron Hawley. Senior Counsel to the Appellate Team at Alliance Defending Freedom, who was very instrumental in the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. I just wanted to throw that in there just to say how grateful we are for uh, both her work and also yours in the uh, defense, uh, defending uh, religious liberty and also the protection of uh, the unborn. So anyway, welcome, uh, Senator Hawley. Thank you. And the reason we're having you on is because you wrote a book, a wonderful book called Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. So, Senator Hawley, we need manhood. Why a book about manhood? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. And you're absolutely right about my wife, Erin. Her family was shocked when she agreed to marry me 13 (laughs) years ago now. It's 13 years ago. this month. So uh, anyway, I've been I've been a grateful man every day since or as my sister, I have a younger sister. And as my sister said at the time, in typical younger sister fashion, when I said that I'd asked Aaron to marry me, she said, but Aaron is so smart, and so kind. Why is it that she's going out with you at all? (laughs) I said, Oh, thanks a lot, sis. Uh, Anyhow, but I'm, I'm a lucky man. And we've got to answer your question. We have three beautiful children two boys and a girl. My boys now are 10 years old and eight years old. And really the book started for them. It started as me thinking about what my obligations are as a father yeah. to raise these boys to be the men that God meant them to be. And, and what are what is my duty to help them become those kind of men? And the book started as reflections about that and for them. And uh, I ended up uh, trying to write it for all guys out there, and and hopefully uh, men will find something to to take away. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is so the Palatine Institute, which this podcast uh, kind of supports, is is really about this idea of building Christian culture in the re-evangelism of our world. I think that's going to be a key. Is uh, this lived out? Our beliefs lived out, and I think you're hitting a chord as our overall culture is crumbling. A lot of it could be laid at the feet of the fact that we've lost this manly virtues. 
And um, I, as an elder at my church, um, I'm a PCA guy. I think I saw that you, you and Aaron are uh, in the EPC, a, a sister denomination. I see uh, a lot of young men floundering and uh, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to be men. And it's, and it's, a, it's an important thing. It's a, it's a crisis. And I think you see that. I think a lot of people see it. I, I find it interesting when I was just kind of fiddling around the internet and seeing responses to your book, how a lot of the left has uh, kind of mocks it. The Epicurean left <laughs> kind of mocks right. it. So in your book, you do a, a great job kind of comparing and contrasting the, the overall philosophy of our age is no longer Christianity, at least in the elites or in the ruling classes, if, if you might say. Um, but I think you properly identified it as an Epicurean worldview. Can you explain that a little bit? Like, and, and how is that affecting our boys becoming men? Yeah, absolutely. You know, here's the thing about today's left is that the roots of their ideology reach all the way back to the ancient world. And, and really, I think the, the signal philosopher of, of today's modern left is Epicurus. And Epicurus, to, to oversimplify, but I hope in a useful way, you know, his philosophy was essentially self. Put the self first. You know, he, he was essentially an atheist. Uh, he said that he, if there were gods, of course, God's plural for him is an ancient Greek, uh, that they, if there were gods, we couldn't know them. Uh, we couldn't do anything about them. And so the best thing we could do with our short, miserable lives, he believed the universe was entirely random. He had a famous theory of physics about random atoms uh, j bumping into each other, causing random events. The swerve. Yeah. Exactly. This, yeah. There was a recent book written about it. Yep, the swerve a few years ago. Exactly. So, you know, Epicurus mindset, which was atheism combined with hedonism, a form of hedonism, I think really has captured the left today and frankly has been sort of the dominant note of the left since the Enlightenment. Yeah. How does that affect men today? It leads directly to the ideology that says that there's really no such thing as manhood or womanhood. There's no such thing as eternity. There's no such thing as, as anything permanent, permanent truth, eternal truth. No. The only thing there is is your own wants and desires in the passing moment. So just make yourself happy. Just pursue those however you can. Yeah. Uh, just live for yourself in a passing moment. And that has led the left to preach that gospel to men and women everywhere and to tell men that if they want to be men, if they want to embrace the traditional masculine virtues, that they're part of the problem, <laughs> that they are making the world a worse place. And I think men have had that message preached to them for decades now, and we're seeing the fruits of that. Yep, absolutely. I think even even that go that message the epicurean gospel has has reached uh, even into the churches i remember uh francis schaeffer famously even back as far back as the 1970s was telling us that um what the what christians are starting to do is pursue personal peace and affluence right if if the world is going to hell in a handbasket it seems and um it, instead of following you know, these manly virtues that you, you point out in, uh, in your book, um, and following the true gospel of Jesus Christ, um, men were pursuing personal peace and affluence. That's essentially Epicurean, uh, belief, right? Just, I'm going to wall myself off. So I'm not just, my tranquility is not disturbed and, uh, and pursue affluence. And then that should be fine. The, the problem is, and I think my hope is, and, uh, it sounds horrible, but I think the fact that it's difficult for, for people to gain affluence 
or at least seeing their, their children gaining affluence, I think has become a wake up call to, to many people in the church. Like you, you can't continue to try to hold two worldviews in the same. It's either the gospel, it's either Christianity or Epicureanism and Epicureanism has been failing us. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to, to build on that, you see, you see the results of this Epicureanism everywhere you look. I mean, you see it in the loss of purpose for young men and women, but just to focus on men, I mean, the rates of suicide are as high or higher among young men as they've ever been. The rates of drug abuse, uh, the rates of now dropping out of, of education, leaving even high school education to say nothing of, of uh, technical training or, or college education. Young men are leaving all of that in droves. So you really can look around and see a, a purposelessness that is deeply affecting and seeping into every area of our life as a culture and particularly with our young people. And, and it, it is it directly stems from this liberal ideology that says the world is a meaningless place. Yep. Your life is essentially meaningless. Just do what you can in the short time you have on earth to try and make yourself happy, however however you can do that. And, yeah. and that is the sort of ideology that we've had pounded into our heads. And then again, I just come back to the fact that when you tell kids now that there's no such thing as male or female, you talk about a radically disorienting and, and of course, radically untruthful yes. ideology. And yet that's what the left has propounded. Yeah, you, you talked about the Romans um, and the... the- to become a man, to become a weir, uh, or beer if you're ecclesiastical Latin, <laughs> but, but, uh, to become a man, it, it was a process. And it, in other words, I, I just want to point out every, every culture at every time and place everywhere, I think has all shown that in order for a boy to become a man, they have to be trained to be a man and that they, they have these particular virtues of of being a man and they have to attain those and and uh, until yesterday in america we decided no we're just gonna we're gonna let people choose i i don't know it's it's the bizarrest thing and um and now that as uh boys are developing in this world where they no one's teaching them to be a man um and we're seeing the fruit of it and now I guess people are scratching their heads. I, I saw the other day, and I think it was on MSNBC, someone had written an article that said the, that, um, that you and the right don't have, you were right that there is a crisis. So finally, I, I guess people on the left have gone, oh, I guess there is a crisis. We, we might address it because they, they all of a sudden went political and thought, oh, I guess if we don't address this, we're going to lose men in the next election. As if that's the problem, like winning an election. It, it's it's crazy, um, but if if schools and, and teachers and mentors and parents aren't teaching their boys to become men and giving them that vision, what's what's going to become of them? Well, I think what will become of them is what we're seeing now. I mean, we will see a further loss of purpose. We will see a further rise in crime. We will see a further deepening of the epidemic of fatherlessness. Yeah. And just to go back to your point of a moment ago, you know, as, as uh, the author and psychologist Jordan Peterson uh, put it recently, I thought this was so good. You know, his, his comment was nature initiates women into maturity, but culture initiates men. Yes. And there's, there's a, a profound sense in which that is true, that to 
become a man in the fullest sense, which is to become a person of character, of masculine character, requires a process of learning and growth and education. And this is really, the, the message of my book is really simple. It, it, it's that the, the path of manhood, the journey of manhood is a journey of character. And you see yeah. that if you look at the scripture and you see what the purpose that God calls us to as men, you see the character that he calls us to ultimately after the pattern of himself, of course, because he is the ultimate man in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But that sort of vision, I think, is completely now lost in our, if not completely, almost completely lost in our in our popular culture. And I think what we will see more and more of is the rise in social dysfunction and then general purposelessness among men of all ages that will result ultimately in the destruction of our society. I mean, if men aren't going to work and aren't going to have families and aren't going to provide, society can't go on. You know, so we will reach a point. Uh, which is a, a crisis from which we can't we can't reverse, and and we want to reverse course before we get to that. Yeah, I mean, even even looking at the statistics of I think first marriages now are is at the age of thirty, and uh, and and we have I mean we have a population problem, and the population problem isn't too many; it's too few. Um, and so, in, unless um, you know, I I graduated high school in nineteen eighty five. And uh, in graduating high school, I just knew I was going to go to school, get a job and get married. My assumption was, is I'm going to go to college. I'm going to find a wife. We're going to get married and have a family. Like it's, it, it wasn't even a thought. It, it, it was just, this is what you did. And we all knew like my happiness, no one at their deathbed wishes they had less kids and, you know, did, I don't know, worked more in their job or something. I don't know. It, it, we all kind of know that, like even the left kind of knows that even the Epicureans kind of know that, um, which is why in a lot of ways they, they continue to get bitter and bitter <laughs> as they're, as they get older. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and, and so I, I, I think that's, there needs to be a way that we're shaping our world, shaping our boys at a younger age and creating a world where it's possible, or at least they see the hope that, that they can make, make them, they can become a man and, and raise a family at a younger and younger age. Um, yeah, that's, it's going to be key. I, I think so much of that depends on once again, recovering these models of what it looks like to be a strong, good man. And yes. our culture currently has trouble telling those stories because the left's message to men is that masculinity is inherently toxic. Yes. You know, I, I quote these liberal experts, so-called in the book, who say things like, uh, there's no such thing as healthy masculinity. That's like saying healthy cancer. And they actually believe this. I mean, yeah. the, the, the dominant cultural voices now in our society, they're almost all leftists, believe this. Yeah. And we've got to, against that, recover the role models of good, healthy manhood. And this is why in the book, I turn to the scripture, go back and look at Joshua and Solomon and David, men who were imperfect. I mean, that's part yeah. of the point, obviously, beginning uh, with, with Adam himself, Abraham, and on through lots of imperfection. God doesn't ask for perfection. Yeah. But wh what he does ask is that we, we follow him, of course, as we as believers know, but that for every man that we live into the, the mission, the purpose that he has given us yes. as men. And I think to recover that sense of story, that sense of mission, that sense of purpose, and then to tell the stories of the men who've lived that out, that is absolutely key for our time. Yeah. And so you go, you talk about um, th these roles or these uh, models in, in part two of your book. 
you have husband and father, and you use uh, the story of Abraham. Uh, you have the warrior, you use Joshua. Um, builder and priest, you use David. Of course, he's also a, a, a warrior. And, uh, and then at king, uh, you, you look at Solomon. Um, you you want to you give a brief overview of each of these, these things, um, Senator Hawley? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm trying to do a couple of things with that progression. I mean, the first thing is, is that I'm, I'm tracing the story of Adam yeah. and then the call of Abraham as a sort of second Adam. And there's a, there's a theological point there that I don't harp on, but, but that, is, that is there for those who, who want to see it and talk about it, which is that what I think the scripture is really saying the story there as the Bible unfolds it is God never abandons his desire, his plan to bring blessing to all of the world through men and women. I mean, he yes. called Adam for that purpose. He put Adam in the garden to be his image bearer. And the Lord never abandons that project. When Adam right. sins and the whole thing goes off track, God doesn't go off track. He doesn't abandon that. He calls Abraham to you know, get the Adam project back onto track, so to speak. And of course, that will ultimately be done fully and finally only by Jesus Christ. But we see that that begin to unfold in Abraham and then in his descendants. So we sort of trace that story and, and ask ourselves as we look at, at Abraham and then at Joshua and so on, what is it about manhood that we can learn from God's calling to men to be image bearers? And so we see men playing these different roles and, and we seeing that we see Abraham as a husband and then as a father. And so I talk about in the book, what can we learn from Abraham's life in those two roles? What can we learn from Joshua as a warrior and then from David as a builder and a priest, and then Solomon as a king. And my my view is is that these are roles that and and virtues, qualities of character yeah. that the Scripture says every man is called to fulfill. And that's true whether you're a father right now or not, or whether you're married right now or not. Nonetheless, yep. the character of a husband, the character of a father, is one that I think is is deeply rooted into the call to be a man and what it looks like to take on the mission of manhood. And so that's how the book unfolds that story of growing in those masculine virtues. Yeah. And I think those are, those are things, you know, I, I guess in my audience, if you're a, if you're a dad, if you're, maybe you're a husband and you don't have kids yet, it, it is a great book to take a look at and to read and to look at the virtues of those things as virtues you want to start instilling in your own sons. Um, and also just in yourself, if you, we all need help <laughs> in those virtues. Right. But um, uh, I, I thought there were, there were some uh, wonderful ones. I was particularly struck with warrior and the idea of, um, well, there was two, there was the two that I, uh, that really stuck out to me is teaching, teaching the virtue of endurance to endure. And I think you put that in the, um, that was, that was father, I think. And then, uh, for the warrior to be able to take a stand and, um, and it is, uh, those are two virtues that are, I, I think, um, I see more often than not uh, missing in a lot of boys and young men. Um, they, they, they don't know how to take a stand and they're not enduring in any, like w once something's difficult, they just give up. And that's a, that's a hard thing to see. Hard thing. to Yes. See. And, and I, I, I think you're right. And I think that having showing young men what it looks like to make a commitment 
to keep a commitment and then to see the payoff of that. You know, there, there is so much there about what it means to have a, a character of a man who can commit and that a, a man who's going to go and expand uh, the garden of God, so to speak. I mean, why did, why did God put Adam in the garden? I mean, it, it was to, to tend what God had made and to no. protect it, but also to expand it, you know, to make the whole world beautiful, to make the whole world a place where God could dwell. And I think that is, that pattern is deeply written into the soul of men. That's the call on, on men's lives. And so men, that's why men have an ambition to do something with their lives. They're meant to be image bearers who will bring the image of God, who will bring the goodness of God out to the world, who will make gardens in the wilderness, bring order from chaos. And if you're going to do that, you've got to be able to endure. You've got to be able to persevere. You've got to be able to confront evil, which is another thing that we talk about in, in the warrior chapter. You've got to be able to make a commitment and keep it. Yeah. And so I think as, as we see the big story, then we can see our, our, the, the virtues that are required of us, the qualities of character that the overall call in our life brings forth in us. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. I think part of it too is, um, and, and, uh, I don't, I don't, did you see when uh, this is sounds weird, but, uh, did you see when, uh, Dion Sanders kind of made a little bit of a, uh, kerfuffle because he, he talked about, um, his ideal team, he was going to have these offensive linemen or all people that had all the these guys who had dads. And then his defensive linemen, uh, they wouldn't be, they would, they would be like, uh, guys who grew up without a dad and people are like, what are you talking about? And, and he said, well, you know, the defensive linemen, they're going to be so angry. Uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to use that on the football field. He said, but the offensive linemen, uh, in, in essence, he's describing this idea. They need to know how to endure. Mm. They have to be able to, to, um, keep their cool, they, their head, they can't, they're not out there for glory. No one's going to even know their name. They're just going to go in and out and they're just going to do their duty. And, and in essence, Deion Sanders is saying the only people that know how to do that are ones that have dads. And, and this was a, uh, it was a shock to the world, but you think about it and he's, he's, uh, almost right. I mean, it's not a hundred percent that way. It's a generalization, but how important it is for young people, for boys to have you can't become a man without men and, um, and how important it is for us as men to be able to find, find young men who don't have dads, uh, to be able to mentor them to as teachers, to be able to take them under your wing as, as coaches to, I mean, so many young men without dads, they, they find that father figure in their coaches, uh, because they teach them how to endure. They teach them how to, 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 to struggle and to fight and to, to keep going. Um, they teach them how to make sure you got your life together so that you, so good things can happen. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's so needed. And I was a young man with a father, with a good father, yeah. but I also had significant coaches in my life who, and, and other mentors in my life, but they tended to be coaches who made a tremendous, tremendous influence yes. on me. Yeah. And I, this just speaks to the point that I think for men who are a little bit farther down the path of life, we have this mentality sometimes that, hey, you know, I get to a certain age and I've kind of paid my dues and my kids now are out of the house. And so it, it's just kind of me time. And well, I just want to say to those men, we need you. You know, yeah, we need absolutely. you now when you've all this life experience, go find a younger man and mentor him. Go find a young father, you know, who's just starting out and is struggling. Go find a young guy who hasn't had a dad at home. Go coach, even if it's just, you know, 
once a week. I mean, go coach, go mentor, go give your life experience to others. We need that kind of intergenerational commitment from men and just the role models and example. And just for older men out there, I would say, again, you can you can make a tremendous difference Huge. in the lives of people who you don't yet know, who are no family relation to you. And I know that's true because it happened for me, for the for the guys of the older men who committed to me, coached me, taught me yeah. and changed my life. I, I recall my, when my when my sons were getting to be teenagers and uh, all of a sudden they're, you know, they're they're going out to coffee with the youth pastor. And I was like, like, why, why is that happening? Like what don't, you know, they have me, I'm, you know, I'm a dad. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I thought like, you know, historically, um, you know, thinking through the middle ages, uh, often what happened is, is that as a, as a boy becomes, you know, teenager, they were often sent off to a, a, another relative's house and, and they, um, it, and, and then after they become a knight or they, they become, you know, an adult, they come back to their father. And, and part of the image is this, is that when you're a teenager, um, you, you want your, you just want your dad to be proud of you. You know, the last thing you don't want your dad to be criti- critical of you all the time. Right. And so, so th- throughout history, there's always been other men, you know, to, to help get them. To, to manhood so they can come back and their dad's proud of them. And it, and it, and it dawned on me like, yeah, yeah, my, my, you've, I think I'm a great dad. I, I do my best as a, a father. Um, you know, my, my daughters think otherwise, but I'm just kidding. I'd say that because they listen to my podcast. Um, but I, I, I think I'm a good father, but I, I realized that he, even as a great father, I need other men to speak into their lives. Um, to, to, they're going to become their own man. And and all they want is me to be proud of them. They don't need me to be chastising them at, at 17. You know, they, they need other men to show them what to do. And if they need to be chastised, uh, the other person could do it. And so what they, what they present to me is, is like, look, dad, I'm look at what I've done. And then I can go, wow, well done. And it's, it's I, an important thing. I saw a uh, I saw a stat recently, which I thought was so interesting from the social science field that said that the average kid, guy, young man, in, in order to reach healthy maturity, needs to have, in addition to his father, another three, four, or five male role models yeah. in his life, healthy that. male role models. And I just thought when I read that, you know, that was, thank the Lord, that was my experience. God bless me. Yeah. with a, yeah. a good father, but then also a good grandfather and coaches and teachers who particularly in my teenage years and in my early 20s had significant effect in my life. And I just think, again, for, for every man out there, not only can you bless your children, you can bless the lives of, of other men who desperately now in this time in our culture when we are facing, as I said earlier, an epidemic of fatherlessness. I mean, I can't underline this yeah. enough. We are at an all-time low in the number of kids who grow up with a father. We are even out of step globally. The United States has more kids who are growing up in homes with a father not present than I think any country in the so-called developed world. And we're really one of the highest anywhere in the world. It's extraordinary. We desperately need fathers in homes, number one, but we just need men present in healthy, constructive ways. And boy, you know, if, if, if you're a man of any age, particularly if you're an older man, have more life experience, that could be you. Absolutely. Yeah. So get to, get to your church, go to, talk to your pastor, 
tell them you're available. Right. I, I it, it, so here's, here's one of the other parts to your book. Um, Senator Holly is, is I, I find it fascinating when you're a Senator, a United States Senator, and you wrote a book about manhood and masculinity. And the beauty of it is this becoming men and changing our country um, is something that we don't need permission from our government to do. It, it is, um, it is a, a choice that we're making it. Um, it, it, we don't need another government program. We need men to step up and to, to start doing things. Now, it, it would be nice if, you know, this, I'm going to start sounding political here, but it would be nice if, say, the federal government would just kind of get their, their noses out of, uh, you know, a, a local community school's business. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And I know you're, you've been concerned with things like, you know, parents at board meetings becoming on FBI watch lists and things. Um, but, but in, in all honesty, if, if the local church would make a concerted effort at mentoring young men, the difference it would make in our world is, is absolutely um, could be tremendous. Um, well, and I, I would go even a step further and say, not only do we not need permission from government yes. in order to live as men and to live into our calling as men, the only thing that will ultimately change this nation for the better, the only thing that will help us become that more perfect union that Abraham Lincoln talked about is for men to step up and to be the kind of persons that God created them to be. It, yes. it's, it begins with a change of character, and which is why every single man is a man of destiny. It's why there is a call on your life. And, and I say this to young men all the time. You want to be a person of influence? Go get married, have a family, invest your life in other people. This, to come back to Epicurus, this is the central falsehood of the yeah. Epicurean liberal worldview, which is that if you live for yourself, you'll be happy. No, you won't. You will not. The evidence of that is all around. People who live for themselves are never happy. They don't leave a legacy. Their lives don't matter. If you will give your life away, if you will invest it in other people, you will leave a legacy that will last. Yeah. In fact, we know as Christians, you'll leave a legacy for eternity. Yes, But that kind of, of change, that change in destiny for families, for neighborhoods and whole nations begins with a change of character and heart in men. And that is an incredibly hopeful message because it's something we can do right now. You don't have to wait for anybody. Absolutely. That's right. Step up. I mean, that's the thing. So he, here's what I'm going to say to my audience. Um, first, read the book. Uh, go grab a copy of Manhood, the Masculine Virtues America Needs. Um if you have questions, if you have further, like, how should I, what can I do? Um, just email me, uh, the Palatine Institute It's part of what we, why we exist is to help, uh, develop a Christian culture, which includes, uh, the raising of children and, uh, in things like developing men, uh, Christian men. So, uh, do that. Is, are there any other resources, uh, Senator Hawley that, you know, that would be uh, great for our audience to, to, to latch onto? That is a great question. You know, there, there are so many folks out there, ministries for fathers uh, and for families that I, that I think are tremendous. And I guess I wouldn't single anyone out, but, but I'm sure that uh, if folks go to, to what you're doing and, and uh, you know, look at their local church, I mean, I just think, again, that for dads out there, I would just encourage you and say what you're doing matters. 
you know, what you're doing as a husband, as a father, it matters. And you don't have to be perfect. I just say this as a father myself. I make mistakes constantly. I write about some of them in the book. And I think sometimes as men, it's hard when you when you mess something up. You think, ah, I, did, I didn't handle that well. I was too harsh. I shouldn't have said that. And then you think, well, I just am not any good at this. Listen, it, it, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. The Lord doesn't demand perfection. All that he de- demands, all he asks is faith and obedience. It's that you get back up on the horse and do it again. It's that you follow what he asks you to do. You know, as fathers, it's just that you stay in the game. You know, invest that time in your kid. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be well-designed quality time. Just make it time. Give your time, your attention, your heart, your energy to your kids and your marriage and God's grace will, will do the rest. It really will. He really will. And that is how you will leave a legacy. Absolutely. I, I as a good Presbyterian, I just want to say uh, we're, we're constantly needing, needing of repentance and, um, and including to our children. Uh, my wife and I, there's been so many times as we're raising our kids and, and things that we notice, it, you know, life has kind of come on and we're not, we're not doing as good a job as we could. And we, we realize it and we'll talk about it. And it's like, okay, first thing in the morning at breakfast, we're repenting to our kids and, and, uh, Hey, this is, this is our fault because we haven't been uh, doing what we need to do. And, uh, and so please forgive us. And now we're, we're starting fresh and, uh, and then we just, we, we get back with the program and, um, and that's a constant thing. And if, if we don't, if we don't understand that that's part of how God made us, um, you know, and we're, we're aiming for perfection. It's, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. You know, I think of a, of a good pastor friend of mine who said years ago when my kids were really, really little, my, my, my first son was maybe two or three. And so my, my second son, I think had just been born. And I remember him commenting to me that his kids were about the same age. He said, you know, it, it just, it dawned on me that I could either model for my kids a life of humility and repentance and what's actually real, which is that I make mistakes, that I say things I regret, that I do things I wish I hadn't done. And I can either be honest about that and model that for them, or I can model something that's kind of fake, which is a, an image of perfection, which they're going to find out sooner or later is not true, yeah. you know, that I'm not perfect. And I can not, not admit any mistakes. And I can just, if I do something I regret, gloss over it. And I thought, what a profound yeah. insight about just even the, the gift we can give to our children of being honest, which is that, yeah, we do make mistakes. You know, we do say things we regret. We do discipline in ways that were stupid or not discipline when we should or not speak up when we ought to have. And, yep. you know, to be honest about that with our kids, I think is a, it is a way of, it is its own kind of education and spiritual formation in a way that I think is liberating for them. Absolutely. And, and also just modeling that idea of reconciliation. Yes. I, I can't, the, the kids, I, I spoke at a, um, uh, Ratio Christi event at a, a local university here um, about just an- anxiety. And uh, one of the biggest anxiety producing things is, is just this idea of the fear of being canceled, right? How many of these 18 to 22 year olds have experienced in their life already, all these people that they no longer speak to that are no longer their friends like that. You know, so when I was, when I was a child and the, there was a fight with someone or a disagreement or something went wrong with a, with some, a kid in the neighborhood or at school. Uh, my parents would force me to go reconcile. Mm-hmm. It forced me to go to say, I'm a sorry. We forgive me. You know, th- these, these things, uh, this model of, uh, we're sinners. We're going to, 
we're going to make mistakes, we're going to sin, and what's needed is forgiveness and then to be reconciled. And yet, um, kids today aren't, they're not growing up with that. They're growing up with this idea if someone's causing you mental harm because they look at you funny or they don't like your political idea or whatever it might be, um, you know, <clears throat> I think their parents voted for. Uh, Senator Hawley, so avoid them, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's leading of a, a society where kids are afraid to make a mistake or to do something contrary, to stand firm, uh, to endure whatever, because they're afraid they're just going to lose more friends. They're just going to yes. be canceled again. I, I told them that, that, that song that came out, um, somebody that I used to know, I said that that song mm-hmm. kind of represents your generation. You know, and they, they're all nodding their heads, but, but that, that's, that's as parents, if we can demonstrate recon, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation, just confess your sin, um, and seek reconciliation with your spouse, with your children, if for teach your children, how to do that, um, how much their lives are, how much happier their lives are just knowing how to not be, you know, you can make, you're free to make a mistake and there's a way in which you can be reconciled. It's just an amazing thing. I know just to pick up on your point about the burden that kids labor under today. My observation is, is that kids, young people today have a tremendous, tremendous burden of perfectionism that is laid on them. And that follows from the same liberal mindset that we're talking about. You think about this. If if your life only means what you make it mean, if it has no inherent meaning, the world is empty, there are yep. no eternal truths. There's yep. no call or purpose on your life. You've got to make it. If you're gonna, your life's gonna matter at all. You're gonna be happy. You've got to go out and do it. That is an incredible, incredible burden. Oh, yeah. And for so many young people, it is crushing. The thought yeah. is, is that if I'm not perfect, if I'm not beautiful, if I don't get the A on the test, if I don't make the team, whatever, then my life's not gonna matter. And I'm gonna be shunned. I'm gonna be canceled. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna miss out. And it's all gonna be over, right? And that is that is so wrongheaded. And such a complete uh, lie. It's the opposite of what the actual truth is that God has made each of us with a purpose, a destiny, and a calling. But I think because of the reigning, frankly, atheistic ideology of our age, the the burden of perfectionism has never been more crushing. And that is, you talk about preaching a gospel of freedom, uh, the the freedom to know that it is not up to us to be perfect, uh, that we are liberated from that by ultimately the call of Jesus Christ in our life, his sacrifice for us. Yeah, that is that is a a true true gospel of of freedom and liberation in this day and age. Yeah, I think when we when we talk to 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 our children and and teach them, they are made in they have inherent value because they're made in God's image and He has a purpose and plan for you. But you're fallen, and so you are going to be bent towards evil. But here's here's the good news, right? Christ died for you. You you have, um, you have this way out your sins have been atoned for, you can be reconciled. You can be, it, it's such freedom, but, um, to, to, to just one of your, um, enemies, uh, in your book, uh, if you're, you're a Rousseauian and you're naturally good and, and everything's up to you, right. Then, then, um, how, how do you account for your mistakes and your sins? And the burden is just so and there's there there becomes a fear of um my only worth is going to be in what i accomplish or what other people say is good it, it's it's just a horrible hor- 
horrible way to live. Um, and it, and kids, kids feel it. They know it. Well, this is why the mental health crisis is what it is among kids, you know, one of the reasons why it is what it is. I mean, the fact that so many young people today feel that if they don't look a certain way, if they don't have a certain number of likes on social media, that their life is worthless and they feel so alienated and isolated and alone. Again, these, these numbers more than we've ever seen recorded in surveys since we've been taking these numbers for decades now, it really is striking. And I think it goes to this mindset that social media makes much worse, right? Social media takes the basic Epicurean cast of our age and just amplifies it and amplifies it and amplifies it. So kids live in this feedback mechanism where they're not being told by adults in their life, you're valuable, you have dignity, purpose, and calling. They're not hearing that. They're hearing that the universe is empty. Their lives are inherently meaningless. And if you don't look like this person, this perfect airbrush person on social media, then you're not going to amount to anything. If you don't get this degree, then you'll never amount to anything. If you don't have this credential, then you'll never be valuable. I mean, that's the message that they hear. And it is it is a burden that nobody can bear and certainly not a 13, 14, 15-year-old. Yeah. I look at the young men and and that that the you know, they they grow up in a life where they're uh, as you put uh, they're constantly told that their masculine qualities are bad, right? We're, we're, you know, they they have energy. We're not going to give you recess, but because you can't sit still, we're going to give you drugs or you misbehave. And so you're going to be labeled a bad student for the rest of your life. Cause it'll follow you in your records. We're, we're going to, you know, and, and now they're looking at, okay, how, how am I going to make a livelihood to get married and have a family? Um, it's, it seems impossible. So I might as well just live in my parents' basement and play video games. And, and so there's, there's a dual thing I think that needs to happen. One is, um, you as your book is pointing out this need to be training these ch- children in these virtues and teach them the truth about who they are in Christ, about how they can be reconciled, how they can give them hope. Um, and also just, <clears throat> we need to do something about our school system, not the federal government, by the way, but local communities or send them to an association of classical Christian school school. That'll, that'll work. Um, but, but, but to, to do these things to, to help understand that being a boy is not an evil. It's, it's a, it's an inherent good because God made you these, this way. And this is, there's a purpose uh, for you. Um, I, I tell my teachers as a headmaster of our, of uh, Providence Academy here in Green Bay, um, you know, the boys are, the boys can get unruly. And if they're not, if they're left up to their own devices, they're going to, they're going to make it, make some trouble. Um, and so you just, you give them a task, put them in charge of something, go to the one who's just constantly getting trouble and say, Hey, listen, we, we feel like, you know, that some of the girls are, are getting picked on by, by these boys. Um, you need to protect them. And all of a sudden the unruly kid, it becomes like the champion. Like they, they just, they just want a task. They want a purpose. They want to be able to to do it and they'll live up to it. And we just need to keep setting that, that, that bar high. The second part, and this is going to sound, sound weirder is just our world is not geared for young people's success. Um, in, in terms of that, that 18 to 30, I, I, I guess you want, want to say it is, is, you know, you just look at the, the cost of everything that, you know, I don't know when the last time a two bedroom starter home was even built in the state of Wisconsin for crying out loud. Right. You, you, the only thing they build are McMansions. Like how do, 
how does it, how does this, how does a young man go, okay, I'm ready to get married when it just seems so out of reach. Well, that's why they're waiting till they're 30 and God didn't make us to wait till we're 30, right? As a, as a pastor, as a, as an elder in our church, um, you know, the, the, young men leaving the faith is typically not because some atheist professor gave them some philosophic answer or, you know, uh, uh, reason for not for disbelief generally is they're they're starting to sleep with their girlfriend and, and they love their sin more than, than Jesus. Right. So, so trying to tell a kid, Hey, you need to stay sexually pure until you're 30. That, that seems, seems odd. But if, if a young man thinks I can, if I can wait till I'm 22, I can wait, I can work hard and wait and, and get to this place. And I, I think that's the one part where I think maybe politics can come into this is how do we start forming a world that's ripe for young men to be able to, to, to marry and have a family at a younger age? Well, think about how much worse the problem is if you are a blue collar young man. So yeah. if you are a guy who does not have a four-year college degree, which by the way is almost 70%, of young men in America, think about the message that Washington, frankly, has sent you for the last 30 or 40 years oh, yeah. as it has systematically shipped at the current count, almost 4 million blue collar jobs oh, that once were pretty good paying jobs has shipped those jobs overseas, particularly to China, although they've gone to other places, but overwhelmingly to China in the last 30 years. Yep. I mean, the message to men has been that frankly, you don't matter. There's not a future for you. So you think about family formation, and you think about most men in America. I mean, I think in policy circles, it's amazing how many people think that, that uh, you know, 90% of, of Americans uh, get a four-year college degree. No, they don't. They no. do not. It's, it's no. almost the reverse. And, yeah. and nor should they have to in order to get a good-paying job on which they can start and raise a family. And this is why I say that if you really consider yourself a social conservative, you care about the family. You've got to care about the economics of the family. You've Absolutely. got to care about getting an economy where a young man can get a job at a young age, can afford to get married, and can afford to start a family. And sure, we all those of us who are married all know that it always seems like you can't afford it, but there really is truth in this fact that yeah. we have we have created an economy yeah. where it is more and more difficult, especially for blue collar workers, yes. to afford to get married to start a family, and that's exactly backwards. In, in Northeast Wisconsin, it was, uh, it's always been, it's a, it's a very blue collar thing. Thank, thankfully, everyone needs toilet paper. And uh, most of our, most of our industries revolve around the making of toilet paper in the, in the uh, Northeast Wisconsin or shipbuilding, uh, that type of thing. Um, and there's, there's lots of jobs and those jobs are good paying jobs. And up until recently, um, you could, you could go, okay, I can get, I can, uh, out of, out of high school, I can go become a machinist make a good living. I can probably, you know, get married and start a family. And now, uh, the, the cost of a home is so, uh, outrageously expensive and, uh, and everything's good. And, and now you, you get a, a, what was a good paying job. And now you're, you're like, you're going backwards with inflation, with the cost of everything. And it, and it's like, well, how did that happen? Well, guess what? It wasn't our fault. <laughs> it, it, it's a, it's a, this is this is the heart, and I guess this is a message. I, I guess my only political message would be would be this. I I don't think men men will always rise to the occasion, and if something's hard, it's worth doing. I think that's the the hardest part is when there's no hope, 
when young people don't think there's hope, that's when it's all lost. So if, if there's the dual front of let's hey let's raise let's raise these boys to be men, let's look at these virtues and instill them in them. Let's be examples of it. Let's let's do that, and at the same time begin to really be focusing on as you said the economics of a family. Um, I I I would say this is this is the odd part too, um, Senator. I you know I'm an '80s kid, like I I had LGBTQ, you know friends i get i get you know coming out of the closet in college those, those types of things i i don't think that any of them would ever have thought that um i mean they would all agree back then like yeah you need to orient society so you're so people can get married and have kids right that's like that's a no-brainer e- even if you weren't ever going to get married and have kids but today it's it's like um I think even bringing that up is sounds controversial. Yeah, you've got the radical left on the one hand telling people that there's no such thing as male and female, I mean, yeah. that the gender is a construct and an oppressive one, not just a construct, but oppressive. Yes. And we need to do away with it. So you've got that I'm message, not- which is being beat into our heads by not just a group of political activists, but by the big corporations, yeah. by the entertainment industry. And then at the same time, You've got policymakers who are making it harder and harder to actually get a good paying job and start a family. Again, especially if you are a young man who doesn't have a four-year college degree and and wants to work with his hands or wants to work outside or just doesn't want to have to pay a gob of money for an overpriced degree. And what colleges are charging is a whole separate topic, but is also, frankly, outrageous, utterly, utterly outrageous. Absolutely. So you put those two things together and you really get this environment where to your point about hope, so many young men, I think, are saying, wow, I, I'm, I'm told that just being a man makes the world a worse place, number one. Number two, I don't know what my life prospects are going to be. I don't know if I can ever afford to have a family. I, I don't know if I can ever uh, be able to say to my wife, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to provide for us and, and for kids we may have. And that is a situation that is just untenable. And I think it's, it is incumbent upon in those of, of us who are in public life, but all of us who are voters, yeah. To say that we want something done on these topics. If you're pro-family, show us, show us with your policies. What yes. are you going to do to yeah. get those good paying jobs, to get marriage encouraged, to create an environment where you can raise and support a family? Absolutely. Amen. I, I'm, yeah, that does, does my heart good. I, I, I kept, you know, for the last, I don't know, for a while I kept asking, like, what, what's the Republican um, agenda? Right. Other than just saying no, like that's, that's not a winning. Right. So, you know, college is expensive. People are in debt. At least the Democrats had an idea. Let's cancel the debt. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's an idea. The the Republicans response is just no. And when that's continually, the response is no, with no positive agenda, it's, it's not going to look good for the the Republican party. No. Well, it's, there's no future in that. I mean, this is, uh, and I know this is not a political podcast, but I'll just agree okay. with you. I just say that I think there's there's no future in that. There's no future in just saying no, no, no. Nor is there a future in just saying more of the same. And and let's yes. be honest, the, the things that I've I've been harping on, uh, our disastrous economic policy for the last thirty plus years, that's been yes. supported by not by Republican voters, but by Republican policymakers in Washington. They've supported these policies that have sent these jobs overseas, that have caused yeah. college tuition to just skyrocket. Uh, that have left blue-collar workers without 
the future. I mean, really, they have they are to blame as well. And my message to conservatives again is is that you're going to have to change course and actually do something that is good for families and for marriage in this country. And if you don't, you can talk about it all you want, but it's yeah. not going to make any difference. And why should people support you if you're not willing Absolutely. to actually do something? Absolutely. And just subsidizing people is is another way of just uh, enslaving them and entrapping them and, and making them That's lose right. hope. Um, I, I, this, so many people have just felt as soon as uh, Obamacare came in, whatever economic position you were in at that moment, you're just going to stay there the rest of your life. It's, it's, uh, it's insane. And we, I, I'm seeing in our area just all these apartments being built, subsidized apartments being built. All that's going to do is raise the rents of everyone else, and it's going to prevent people from being able to ever own a home because they're going to be on a subsidy, and it's just going to keep them stuck there. Uh, but it comes across as like, quote, helping people. It's not helping anyone. It's ruining people's lives, and they're all two-bedroom apartments. So you're you know, like if you're going to have a family, it's already putting in their head that they can have one or two kids, and that and that's another a whole other statement. But I see the time. And Senator Hawley, I want to thank you so much for being on this. this is, when when uh, when Noah called, uh, let me know, he says, hey, would you like to have Senator Hawley on your podcast? I was a little, uh, are you serious? Like, this is uh, wonderful. I uh, thank you for your time out. Again, I want to thank you again as for you and your your wife Erin's uh, uh, hard work on uh, both on, on uh, issues of life and also on um, religious liberty. I can't tell you how much we appreciate that, and um, you're you're doing the Lord's work. So thank you very much, and uh, thank, thank you for you. this book, and for pushing the conversation forward, uh, not just among Christian circles, but I think publicly. I think this is this is good, and you're you're all the right enemies are are coming out, and that's great. <laughs> so so you can tell it's good, right? Well, I, it, uh, in, in this town, at least in Washington, I've learned that you can, you can often uh, figure out who your real friends are based on who your enemies are and whether you're making any progress or not. But listen, all, all of that aside, the truth is I don't, I don't actually read any of the criticism or, or focus on yeah. any of that because there just is not enough time for that. You know, you've got right. to focus on the work at hand. There's so much affirmative work to do. And yeah. uh, the book was a joy to write. I hope it's a benefit to some men out there. And, and I just really thank you for your ministry and for having me on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again. All right. Well, um, I look forward to seeing uh, more about uh, how this book uh, pans out in our culture. And, uh, and again, thank you very much. So until next time. Thank you so much. 